there is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. Start again in Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to read just a handful of verses and have you mark something in your Bible, then we're going to walk back through it. Look beginning in verse number 6. The Bible says, And Abram passed through the land. We're all just passing through, aren't we? This is not our permanent home. Solomon talked about going to our long home. Where's your long home? That's, that's where we're going someday. So in a sense, we're all nomads. I'm a traveler. As an evangelist, I'm in a different place every week. Last Sunday, I was preaching in California. That's a long ways from New Hampshire. Uh, next Sunday, I'll be in another state. And uh, just from place to place to place. And so I understand a little bit about this traveler's life. But in a very real sense, we're all just travelers because we are pilgrims in this world and our home is eternity. So Abraham's a picture here. Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, unto the plain of Morah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Do you see the two parts here, the two sides of the communication in verse number 7? On God's side, revelation. On Abraham's side, response. Do you remember what I said to you this morning? You can't meet God and be the same. When Abraham saw the Lord and heard from God, what did he do? Immediately, he built an altar. He said, this is a holy place. God is here. I'm going to meet with God. He built an altar. Look at verse number 8. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord. And called upon the name of the Lord. Come to chapter 13 with me, would you please? Beginning in verse 1, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him, into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold, and he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And look at the last verse of chapter 13. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron. That's very interesting. Mamre means vision and Hebron means communion. Sounds like a spiritual place, doesn't it? But notice what he does there. And built there an altar unto the Lord. Anybody notice in the verses we've just read together what Abram did everywhere he went? What did he do, church? Tell me. He built an altar. Matthew Henry said, wherever man pitches a tent, God should have an altar. In other words, wherever you live, you must there learn to recognize the presence of God in that place and meet God in that place. I must testify for a moment and tell you that as a person that 
is in a different state every week and wakes up every morning wondering what state he's in, it's been a wonderful reminder to me that wherever I go, God is there. He was there before I got there. He went with me there. He'll be there after I'm there because the Lord is in every place. There is no place where you can go and get away from God. The psalmist said, if I ascend him into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there thy hand shall lead me. Aren't you glad our God is everywhere? The question is not, is God there? The question is, will we recognize God there? So what was the altar? You know, in our world today, so many religious groups have made, have made almost idols out of their altars. How many of you know what I'm talking about? I mean by that, like religious relics. We were, we were in Israel, and uh, in, in the traditional site of certain places of the death and burial of Christ and all of that, and really nobody knows for sure. I've got my own feelings about where it is. But honestly, Pastor, it grieved me. It grieved me to see the churches they'd build on top of those sites and, and the candles burning and, and the relics everywhere and the, the, the golden altars and all that. And I thought, my soul, these people have the form of godliness but denying the power thereof. They're, they're missing the Christ of this place while they're worshiping the place. That, that's not the way it's supposed to be. May I ask you, what were these altars? You know what these altars were? These altars were just the visible representations and reminders of Abraham's faith in God. Let me tell you what an altar is. An altar is a picture of sacrifice. It's a place of surrender. An altar is a place where you humble yourself and you offer all that you have to one that is much higher than you. Everybody remember the most high God that we met this morning? And so the altar is simply a place where we acknowledge again and again and again every day and in every place that God is God and we are not. That's what the altar is. The altar is a place of confession and communion. An altar is a place where things go to die and other things come alive. That's what an altar is. An altar is a place where man humbles himself and brings worship to the only one who is worthy of it. May I pause and say, I'm glad I don't have to bring anything to the altar so I can have my sins forgiven. No, no, I don't. Do you know why? Look up here just a minute. Do you see that? that that's our altar. Matter of fact, I can prove it to you. We'll come back to Genesis. Hold your place here a second. Go to the book of Hebrews just for a minute. I was preaching the other day in Hebrews 13, came across this expression, and oh, it just has thrilled my soul, this book of better things, uh, talking about Christ being the better high priest and the better sacrifice and the better covenant and everything's better with Jesus. Look at Hebrews 13, verse number 10. He writes to these very religious people, to these very strict Jewish people. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 10. He says of followers of Jesus, we have an altar. Would you mark that in your Bible? Whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. He said, because you're religious doesn't make you fit to come to our altar. It's a different altar altogether. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. May I say to you, Christ is our final, forever, and full sacrifice for sin. And the cross was the altar where that sacrifice was given. So when I talk to you about an altar, we're not Old Testament people. We're New Testament people. We understand we're not trying to earn salvation. No, no. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. It is not the altar of atonement we're talking about here for sin. 
It is the altar of worship. And my dear ones, that is an altar we must never lose. That is a, a principle that we must, we must never forsake. May I ask you a personal question? Do you have an altar? Do you personally have an altar, a place where you meet with God? I'm not talking about some, some wooden thing you built. I'm not talking even about some, some necessarily physical place. I'm asking this. Do you have a time every day where you meet God in his word just to commune with him? Do, do you have a place where you go where you humble yourself and bow in the presence of God and give him glory because he's worthy of it? I'm going to tell you, every Christian needs an altar. Every Christian. This church has something we call an altar. Do you all refer to this as an altar? And somebody says, what makes it an altar? Only one thing. People come here to pray. Otherwise, it's just steps. We, we refer to it as an altar. What makes it an altar? It's a place where people came this morning, humbled themselves, and they filled this altar. People kneeling to pray and to meet with God. Somebody asked me not long ago, they said, you know, in our day and age, uh, people don't really like getting up and coming forward and kneeling publicly and that kind of thing. Why do you still give the old-fashioned altar calls and invite people to come and pray? May I just say this to you? I understand. People can pray in their seat. They can pray driving down the road. They can pray in the woods somewhere. You can pray anywhere and everywhere. How many of you are glad for that? But there is still something very good about us publicly identifying with Jesus Christ and bowing before the Lord with God's people to make our petition known to God. And I think something is lost when the altar is put away. Or how about this? Do you have a family altar? A family altar? What do you mean by that, preacher? I mean by this as a family. Do you pray together? Do you ever read the Word together? Do you worship together? You know, it's funny, Pastor. People come to church, and they, and they almost come with this mentality. They wouldn't say it this way, but they come with this mentality. Well, we're going to church again today. Hope the preacher's got something good for us because, Lord knows, we need to worship God. We need something to get through this week. Let me tell you how you can always know you're going to worship God at church. Would you like to know? Bring your worship with you. Don't wait till you get to church to worship God. Do you know worship shouldn't start at the church house? It should start at your house. Lead your own family to worship God. Friends, look, there's nothing, nothing special about this building. I'm glad. You've got a beautiful facility. It's a wonderful place to meet God. But I want you to know, this is not the place where worship goes on. It's not confined to the four walls of this building. You ought to be worshiping God at your house. The altar extends to every area of life. Do you see that everywhere Abraham went, he built an altar and met God. Everywhere God took him, he recognized God's presence in that place. Richard Baxter, one of the old Puritan preachers, took a pastor in a, a little village, a little community. He was so excited, he just knew everybody was going to get right with God. And, and he preached for six months, and nobody got saved. Nobody got baptized, nobody got right with God, and nobody was added to the church. Let me speak as a preacher and tell you, that's discouraging. At the end of several months, he started asking the Lord, Lord, is there something wrong with me? After he made sure he was right with the Lord, he said, Lord, something, something's got to give here, and God prompted him to do something. He set an appointment with every family, not at the church house, at their house. He went into every house in his church. He said, I'll only come when every member of the family is there. 
He'd get all of them around the dining room table. It's an amazing story. And he would sit there around the dining room table, and he did two things. The first thing he did, he went around the table, and he said to every person, tell me how you got saved. Tell me how you got saved. Tell me how you came to faith in Christ. Tell me about your relationship with God. He said the first thing he figured out in a hurry is he had a bunch of lost church members. And there in their homes, he had the joy and privilege of leading many of them to profess their own personal faith in Jesus Christ. That was a pretty good start right there. The next thing he did was he asked for the family Bible. How many of you remember in homes when people still had family Bibles? And even that you barely see anymore. But he would get the family Bible. He would open the family Bible to some portion of Scripture. He would read a portion of the Word of God, and then he would say, now let's pray. And he would pray his way around the table and pray over every family member by name that this, this truth from God's Word would be true in their lives. And when he said amen, he would close the Bible, pass it across the table to the head of the household, and say to that person, what I have just done with your family, you should be doing with your family every day. And he established what he called family altars. By his own testimony, he said within six weeks, revival had broken out in that community. There were so many people getting saved and baptized, they could not get them all in the church building at the same time. And do you know when it happened? Not when he preached better sermons on Sunday. When people suddenly began to meet God in the altar of their own homes. I'm standing here right now thinking, dear Lord, I'm grateful for the people that came to the altar this morning. I'm grateful for that. But I'm going to tell you what would thrill me much more would be if the believers and families and beloved Christians in this room would develop their own personal walk with God and lead their family into the presence of God and establish some altars that will extend long beyond the special meetings of this church. As I meditate on this passage of Scripture in the last few days, I've come to realize something, and it is this. Please don't miss this. This is key to the whole thing. That an altar is never the end. It is always the beginning. Look, if the cross is the altar where Christ paid for our sins, you tell me, church, was that the end or was that the beginning? Now look, when Jesus said it is finished, he was just getting started really good. It's just the beginning. You see, when you come to the altar, the altar is where every other good thing is set in motion. So I want to show you very quickly tonight in these portions of Scripture what happened after the altar. See, I think too often we have made the event, the experience, the, the emotion, the decision, the prayer, the aim, the goal of it all. Friend, I'm not here for you to make a decision. I'm here for you to become a better disciple. That's what we're here for. We're not here just to have a meeting. We're here to say, all right, Lord, out of this, what do you want to change in our lives? So let me give you a list of some things. Do you have a pen handy? I want you to write them down because it will help you remember them and meditate on them and use it like a spiritual checklist after the service. Let's back up, please, to chapter 12 again because this is where it started. In verse 7, he builds an altar in, in Shechem. In verse 8, he builds an altar in Bethel. And then you come to verse number 9 where the Bible says, And... Excuse me, kids, for using a dirty word in church, but that's a conjunction. That's what that is. And did you know that even the conjunction is a revelation? This is really interesting. When you look at verse 8, he's at the altar. He's calling on the name of the Lord, and somebody said, oh, that's a high, holy moment. Friend, I want to tell you, every step you take with God is a high, holy moment. So when you come to verse number 9, 
where it says, And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Please don't miss this. He is walking in the presence of the one he communed with at the altar. Would you write this down? Number one, after the altar, you must go on with God. Far too many people make some decision in a church meeting, and that's as far as it goes. I love the beautiful progression here. In verse number 8, he calls on the Lord. In verse number 9, it says he went on. <laughs> it's a journey. Life's a journey. I got saved 41 years ago. As a five-year-old boy, Christian woman led me to Jesus, gave me the gospel, put my faith in Christ. I think back on it now, it was precious, it was wonderful. I didn't know a lot, but I understood I needed Jesus, and I got saved. You know what that was? Everybody look up here just a second. This is deep. You know what it was? It was this. It was the first step. And God started working in my life step by step and day by day and moment by moment. As a 12, almost 13-year-old boy, I sat in a meeting one night. A preacher got up, preached like a wild man. I mean like a wild man. Jumped up and down, hollered and screamed and stomped, snorted. And, and uh, I mean, he preached. I don't remember anything he said, but he really got with it that night. You know what I remember from the meeting? God spoke to me. I can't explain it any other way, but that was, the, that was the night God confirmed in my heart. He wanted me to give my life to the Lord and serve him with my life. And you know what I did? Look here. I took another step, and I said, yes, the Lord, and I started following the Lord. I just started right where I was. I'm testifying now, 46 years of age. You know what I'm learning right now at this stage of my life? I'm still on the journey. I'm not dead yet. Aren't you glad we're not dead yet? Everybody take a breath. Isn't that nice? That was fun. Let's all do it again. Take another one, which is... That's God's gift to you. You hear me just a second. Don't you die before you die. And don't you quit before God is finished. If you're breathing, you're here, you're still on the journey, you haven't met God yet, there's a reason God left you here. You know what that means? It means there's another step for you to take. It's the journey of life. It's taking a step at a time. And I, I'm glad. Come to the altar and pray. But when you get up from that altar, you must go on with God. Somebody said Psalms is the Christian on his knees and Proverbs is the Christian on his feet. There's a wonderful order to that. You meet God and then you bring God into every area of your life. You don't confine him to Sunday. You don't divide life between the, the sacred and then the part you want to control. No, no, it all belongs to the Lord that you met at the altar. Matter of fact, there's a beautiful word. Look at verse number 9. I've marked this word in my Bible. It's the word still. I love that. Dear Lord, help us have some people that six months from now are still praying and still in the Word and still loving Jesus and still pursuing Christ and still trying to be what God wants them to be. After the altar, we must still go on with God. Let me give you a second one. Come down, please, to verse number 10. Because the Bible says, and there was a famine in the land. Isn't that just about right? Every time you're trying to do the right thing, the famine comes, right? There's a famine in the land. By the way, God did some amazing things in Scripture in the famine. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Time out just a second. Let me ask you something, Abram. If God's taking care of you to this point, do you really think you need to go to Egypt to get food? And yet before you criticize Abram, could I just remind you that very often we do the exact same thing. Egypt, of course, always the picture of the world. And so he takes a little unholy, unsanctioned detour. 
for the record, I don't have time to develop this, he would come back from it. He didn't stay in Egypt, but he brought some baggage back with him. Can I prove it? Do you remember that he had a child by another woman named Hagar and that child Ishmael would become a group of people that would violently fight against the children of Isaac, the promised seed. Everybody remember that? Do you know where they met Hagar? In Egypt. Interesting to see how people take these detours from God and they say, well, I'll get that right later. I'll take care of that later. You may. You may very well come back from that. But I want you to know that there are always consequences to our disobedience. Be very careful because it's after the holy moments where the real test comes. It's, it's after the victory that the battle comes. It's, it's after the mountaintop that suddenly your faith is going to be tested. So write this down. Would you please, after the altar, we must deal with our trials and temptations. His trial was the famine. What was his temptation? His temptation, once he got down into Egypt, was to lie. Look at verse number 11. It came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. In other words, you're a good-looking thing. That's what he said to her. You're beautiful. Look at verse number 12. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say this is his wife and they will kill me but they will save thee alive. Say I pray thee thou art my sister that it may be well with me for thy sake and my soul shall live because of thee. Now do you know what this was? It actually was a half truth because she was a half sister. If you look at their family tree at their, at their lineage the way it was but it wasn't the whole truth. She, this woman was his wife. She belonged to him and so that's exactly what they did. They lived a life for a period of time and God brought the consequence of that on Pharaoh's household and brought all of that to light and it was a most embarrassing situation. I want you to know something. When the famine times come in life, that is the test of whether you're going to continue believing and obeying God or you're going to take matters into your own hands. And I have no idea who I'm preaching to right now, but I guarantee you in this room there's some people facing the famine. And it may not be financial. It may be in your marriage. It may be with your children. It may be in your own mind and emotions. I don't know what famine you're dealing with right now. But I want to tell you on the authority of the Word of God tonight, this world holds nothing that will fill the famished soul that our God is the God of all fullness. You get as close to God as you possibly can and you stay close to Him in the midst of your famine. That is not the time to doubt God and question God. That is not the time to, to try to, to, to work your way or force your way through life. That is the time to not lean to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. And so what does Abram do? He sins. He lies. By the way, he not only lies, he led his wife to lie. Think about that. When you sin, you never sin alone. I was meditating on this this afternoon. Did you know he commits this same sin a few chapters later? It's crazy, isn't it? Chapter 20 does the same thing. They go into another place, and he says, tell them you're my sister. Same exact sin. And once again, it comes to life. Let me tell you one worse than that. A few chapters later, his son Isaac does the exact same thing. Somebody said, that's crazy. Well, could I remind you that the Word of God is a mirror on us? I want you to think about your life for a minute. What's your besetting sin? Every person in this room has some besetting sin. Every person in this room. By the way, you have to live a little while and mature in the faith sometimes to even identify what it is. How many of you think you know what it is? I'm not going to ask you to tell me, so relax, all right? 
How many of you think you know what your besetting sin is? Would you raise your hand, please? I know what mine is. I'm not going to tell you it's not your business. But I have a besetting sin. Sure I do. You know where most of our besetting sins start? In our youth. Sins of a lifetime really find their seeds in youth. And, and we all have certain bent and certain things in our nature and in our character, every one of us. And don't look at me so pious. We all have those things. I'm going to tell you what you got to do. you got to do battle against those sins. you got to do battle against your flesh. Stop excusing it. Stop blaming somebody else for it. Stop comparing yourself with somebody else or the way you used to be. Stop saying, well, that's just the way I am. It may be the way you are, but it's not the way God wants his children to be. You say, by the grace of God, I'm going to deal with this sin. I'm not going to let it continue in my life. One of the great dangers is we don't let it continue in our lives. It finds its fruit in our children and in our grandchildren who perpetuate the same sins and much worse if they're not dealt with. Oh, may the Lord help us to do more than pray a prayer at an altar. May the Lord help us in the midst of our famines to be true to Almighty God after the altar. Let me give you a third one. Come down, would you please, to chapter 13. Look what he does. He comes in verse 1 out of Egypt. How many of you are glad he came out of Egypt? Look at verse 3. He went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Hai. Would you mark in verse 3 where his tent had been at the beginning? I love that. Back to the beginning. Look at verse 4. Unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. Would you mark in verse 4, there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. You ready for this one, church? Write it down. After the altar, we must go on with God. After the altar, we must be true to God in the famine. And after the altar, we must go back to the altar. It's a funny thing, but when you make decisions in your Christian experience, if you're not careful, you can think, all right, I checked that box. I got that one whipped. I got that behind me, and now I'm not going to have to deal with that anymore. Can I tell you what I've discovered? That many times we've got to go back and recommit ourselves again and again and again. I used to think, honestly, that someday I was going to be in the perfect meeting. I don't know why I thought this. I thought someday the greatest preacher in the world would blow through town and preach the perfect sermon, and I would just be there, and, you know, you get a tingle up your spine, and you have that euphoric experience, and suddenly, boom, you become super Christian. Can I just tell you, that day has never come, and it's not going to come for you either. And I'm going to tell you why that is. You ready for this? Because God did not make your experience with him to simply be one incident that you talk about for the rest of your life. He made it to be a daily journey with him that you have to trust him for and obey him in every step of the way. And sometimes you know what you do? You just got to go back to the altar. You know what the word Bethel means? House of God. Oh, I love that. You know where he's been? Egypt. <laughs> I've been in Egypt. Did you know, even to this day, I was talking to somebody about this this week who'd been in Egypt. Egypt has an oppression to it. I can't explain it any other way. It's just, it's weird. It's an oppressive kind of place. I think the curse of God still rests on that land because of their treatment of, of his chosen nation. And I'm going to tell you what Egypt always is a picture of in Scripture. It's always a picture of what this world has to offer. Where has he been? He's been in Egypt. And where is he coming back to now? He's coming back to the house of God. I'll tell you why we're having this meeting this week. We're having this meeting this week so some of God's people will come back to the house of God. And I'm not talking about this building. 
I'm talking about into the presence of Almighty God. To begin to live in his presence again. And love him like you used to love him. Do you remember when you first got saved? I do. Do you remember, do you remember when you got your first Bible and started reading it and you didn't understand it all, but you, you enjoyed it and you were finding things and discovering things? And you'd find something and you'd tell a friend, like, you know, it's the greatest thing in the world, and they acted like it was old hat because they'd seen it a hundred times, but it was fresh to you. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you couldn't wait to get to church and you didn't want to rush out the door as soon as it was over? You just enjoyed being with God's people and you couldn't get enough of it? Or you had your first answers to prayer and it was the most thrilling thing on earth? Do you remember when you wanted to see all your family saved and, and all your friends come to faith in Christ? I want to ask you something. What has happened to us that we've gotten over that? What has happened to us that the fire has ebbed low in our souls? It must be rekindled again. That's why in Revelation chapter 2, he says, you've got to get back to first love. You've got to get back to the first works. You've got to get back to the first thing. You've got to get back to Bethel. You've got to get back to the beginning. You've got to get back to the altar and live in the presence of God every day. It is after the altar that we must learn, we must return again and again to the altar. And then there's a fourth thing. Come down to verse 5. This is interesting to me because we're getting ready to have a fight. How many of you like a good fight? Yes? And Lot also, verse 5, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. Don't we fuss over the dumbest things? And yet, can I point something out to you? Did you ever notice that this conflict came at the very moment where Abraham had gotten right with God? You know, people think, they think if they get right with God, things will be smooth sailing. Let me just tell you something. You get right with God, you enter into a spiritual warfare because everything God is blessing, Satan is trying to destroy. So don't let that surprise you. If God's blessing this church, rejoice in that. Praise God for it, but pray a hedge around it because everything Christ is building, the devil's trying to tear down. Everything God ordains, Satan opposes. It's been that way from the very beginning. And so suddenly you have this interpersonal conflict. It's interesting how practical this gets. Write it down, number four. After the altar, you have to work on your relationship with others. Remember Jesus saying you've got to love God with all first and then Love your neighbors yourself. There's this divine order. And listen to me, when you truly get right with God, you want to be right with others. Don't tell me revival has come and people won't speak to each other. No. Don't tell me God's really done something in my heart, but I, I can't stand that person and I, I don't want to be around that person. I'm just going to tell you something. When the Lord does something in you, the Lord begins to do something in your relationships. I was preaching a revival meeting uh, an hour and a half, I guess, from where I live. When you're on the road like I am all the time, every night in your own bed is a good night. So I was driving back and forth, and I got there on the last night of the meeting. place was packed, parking lot filled, and I parked out and was walking in right at church time. People were already in the building. They had started some music, and, and there was a little elderly woman standing at the door by herself with a little brown bag in her hand. And, when I got to the door, she said, oh, preacher, she said, I've been waiting on you. She said, I made you some banana nut bread. I said to her, I know it's going to be a good meeting now. That's good. And then she started crying. 
And she said, I need to tell you something. She said, last night in the middle of the meeting, she said, it wasn't necessarily what you said. She said, but in the middle of the meeting, she said, the Holy Spirit of God brought my sister's face to my mind. She said, now I know you don't know me. She said, but I've been a faithful Christian in this church for decades. She said, I'm one of the workers here in the church. I'm active in everything. And she said, but my sister and I have not spoken for 20 years. 20 years. She said, we got filled with hatred over something and anger over something and had a falling out. And she said, two decades have passed and we've not had any interaction. She said, I went home last night and she said, I tried to go to bed. And she said, I couldn't sleep, tossed and turned all night. She said, I got up this morning, tried to read my Bible, couldn't get anything out of it. She said, I got down on my knees and tried to pray. She said, I couldn't pray. And she said, finally, I thought, I can't live like this. She said, early this morning, wee hours of the morning, I went to the phone and called my sister. She started laughing. She's weeping and laughing at the same time. She said, wouldn't you know that God had been working on her heart too? And she said, on the phone this morning, my sister and I got right with God and got right with each other. And she said, I just want to tell you, it's been the most wonderful day all day today. And we'll tell you what that is. That's revival. See, when the God who is love moves in, he kicks a whole lot of junk out. Now, notice very carefully, this is after the altar. Look at verse number 8. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen. We be brethren. Did you know praying men are not striving men? I want you to let that sink in just a minute. When you live in the presence of God, you don't fuss and fight all the time. Oh, you'll fight the devil and take your stand for righteousness. But you're not a critic and a cynic, and you don't go around trying to pick everybody to pieces, and you're not easily offended. And I'm going to tell you why that is, because you are living with all eyes on Jesus, and when God is big, everything's small. Look at verse number 9. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, I'll go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And, of course, we know the rest of the story. Lot chose the place that looked good to him that was near Sodom, and that turned out to be disaster. What does Abram do here? He's leaving himself not to chance and not to Lot's choice. He's leaving himself here in the hands of divine providence. And we'll come back to that thought in just a moment. But write this down. Number four, after the altar, we must work on our relationship with others. How? How does he do that? May I point out two or three things? First of all, there's humility here. Hey, Lot, hate to bust your bubble, but every good thing you enjoy is because of Uncle Abe. Everything. Your cattle, your riches, all the stuff you have. Where do you think you got that, son? Do you understand that Lot had been living in the overflow of what God was doing in Abraham's life? He didn't get it. He thought it was all about him. How many of you think Abraham had every right to look Lot in the face and say, look here, pipsqueak, you get your herdmen together. We're going to have us a little powwow. I'm going to tell you all where you can go. Now, let's just get real for a minute. How many of you know in our spirit that's the way we would have wanted to react? Would you raise your hand? You know, some of you are just more spiritual than I am. I understand that. We're full of ourselves. We're fleshly. We want to force our way through life. And what does Abraham do? He humbles himself. Not only is there humility here, there's peace here. Look what he says. Let there be no strife, I pray thee. We be 
brethren. By the way, if there is peace, would you listen to this? If there is peace, somebody has to make it. I hear people say, I want to be one of those peacekeepers. That's not the Bible word. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. You know why that is? Because there's no peace unless somebody initiates it. You can't be a peacekeeper in this church. You'll have to be a peacemaker in this church. You know what a peacemaker does? They initiate it. Oh, oh, I love this. Do you know when you're most like Jesus? You're most like Jesus when you're making peace because that's what he's doing all the time. You know why Jesus went to that cross? To make peace between you and the Father. Isn't that amazing? Do you know what the Lord's constantly trying to bring into our lives? The peace of Almighty God. So when you go out of your way and get out of your comfort zone and defer to someone else and honor preferring one another, you know what you're doing? You're following not just the steps of Abraham. You're following the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ in making peace. And so what does he do here? After the altar, he does the right thing by Lot. I'll give you one little footnote before I give you the last thought tonight, and it is this. When Lot left took all of his herds and his tent and all of his servants and all that and moved down there. Abram didn't leave him. Because just a couple chapters later, you're going to see Abram standing, looking over Sodom and praying, Oh, God, would you please spare Sodom? Oh, God, a nephew's down there. His family's down there. Let me tell you something. When God has his rightful place in your heart, you start seeing people like God sees them and loving them like God loves them, feeling towards them like God feels toward them. Remember, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And we can get pretty worked up at people who do the wrong thing towards us or even people who do the wrong thing towards God. We can get so aggravated with sinners that after a while we're, we're living in anger and not in love ourselves. But when you meet God in the altar, that changes your perspective on everybody. One more and I'll stop. Starting in verse number 9, he says, you pick. Verse 10, Lot picks. Come down, please, to verse number 12. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, pitched his tent towards Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And the Lord said unto Abram after that Lot was separated from him. That's interesting to me. After Lot chose the better area. <laughs> after that. The Lord says to Abram, Abram, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. Would everybody please look at verse 14 and tell me if there's any direction he didn't cover. Uh, oh, this is really interesting. Abram gave Lot two choices. Remember that? He said, you go right and I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. God says, look in every direction. I'm giving all that to you. Jim Elliott, martyred missionary, I'm reading his reading his journals right now, and they've been doing something on my heart. Jim Elliott said, God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. Did you know God always makes better choices than we do? Keep reading. Verse 15, for all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land and the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Would you write this down, number five? After the altar, you have to trust that God will take care of the future. You know what Abram does here? He doesn't leave the choice to Lot. looks like he's leaving the choice to Lot. He's leaving it up to the Lord. 
He's saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm resting that you will do what is right. I'm believing that you will take better care of me than I could ever take care of myself. I hear people sometimes say, I'm going to lay that on the altar. I'm just going to lay that on the altar. The tough thing is not laying things on the altar. The tough thing is, is leaving things on the altar. You know how many times I've laid something down on the altar and picked it right back up the next day? And you know what some of us need to do tonight? Some of you tonight need to bring yourself, bring your family, bring your kids, bring your burden, bring your trouble, bring your sin, bring whatever it is, and put it on the altar and then say, now, Lord, after I leave this altar, I want to live in faith, confident that you are going to take care of this and not take this back into my own hands. I say again, the altar is not a place, not a thing, not an event. It's a way of life. And that's why in verse number 18, when Abram removes his tent, comes to Mamre in Hebron, what does he do, church? He built there an altar unto the Lord. Mm. If I said to you, how would you describe Abraham? Tell me about Abraham. You know what most people would say? He was a wanderer. And he was. He was a pilgrim. Hebrews 11 says that. Let me tell you what I would say. He was a worshiper. Because everywhere he went, he said, hmm. I think this might be a good place for an altar. Let's build one here. And when he picks his tent up, moves several miles away and says, let's set tent here. Hey, hey, boys, get you some stones together because we're going to make us another altar here. You know what he was doing? He was worshiping his way through life. Would you like joy? Let's take a survey. How many of you would like some fresh joy? Learn to worship. Do you need strength? Anybody need strength this week? Anybody need wisdom for any decisions? I'm just curious. L listen to me. Learn to worship. Because when you learn the principle of the altar and the way of worship, you begin to live in the presence of God. I'd like you to look at me and listen to me, this final thought. In Abram's day, there were two things for these pilgrims that were vital, altars and wells. Why were wells important? Yeah, you kind of needed them so you didn't die. You're living in the desert. You're looking for water. Got to dig wells. So everywhere he went, he did two things. He built an altar, dug a well. 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 You read the rest of the book of Genesis. His son, grandson, offspring comes along behind him. This is fascinating. You find them continuing to dig wells and even redig some of the wells that their daddy had dug originally that had gotten stopped up, but there's not much record of his children building altars. And I'm thinking right now about my own children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren that I may never see, but if Jesus tears his coming, they will live. And I wonder, will they just draw from some of the good things in our life and some of the things we've left behind? Will, will they just pull buckets out of the wells that we've left for them? Or will they have truly learned to build an altar? I think we've left too many wells and too few altars. That's what I think. I think we've taught kids how to build an education and build a resume and build a, build a financial portfolio and build a retirement and build a house and build a business, but we've not taught them how to build an altar. My grandpa died when he was 57. 
There was an old-timey mountain preacher in the hills of West Virginia, hardening of the arteries. 57, he was gone. My dad went to the hospital to gather his personal effects. It wasn't much. He gave my dad his wallet. Dad said, I opened his wallet. There was no cash in it. And he said, in the back, in the little change purse section, there were three pennies. He said, we got to looking around, found out that's all he had. The only money my grandfather had to his name when he died, <laughs> three pennies. Dad told his siblings, there were several of them, James being one of them, he said, now, we're not going to fight over the inheritance. I'm keeping all of it. And he did. And in the family Bible in West Virginia, there's three pennies taped in the front of it. Somebody said, oh, that's sad. So that's what he left you. No. No. He left us faith in God. He left us a testimony. He left us a heritage of those that fear the Lord. He left us an example of prayer. That's what he left us. The lions are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. He didn't leave many wells, I got to tell you. But he left some altars. And if God will help me, that's what I'd like to leave behind too. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible-preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.